welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast that will not stop asking Chelsea Manning to be our guest. Come on, Season of the Bitch, Chelsea Manning. <laughs> Today we have Laura and Kellen. So, um, today's topic is women of color in academia. We have some amazing guests who will be on soon, and we're really going to let them do the talking on this issue because uh, neither Laura nor I, believe it or not, have any experience being a woman of color in any environment, let alone academia. And I thought about talking to y'all a little bit about like the history of education access in this country or like whipping out some stats or something, but <laughs> <laughs> we have some people coming on or one person coming on whose literal topic of study is education access. So like, why would I talk when we can listen to her? Yes. Our guests today are so unbelievably talented and amazing, and we are so grateful to have them talk your ears off instead of us. So, yes. <laughs> We did think it would be nice, though, to pause and reflect a bit on the live show and um, fill in the people who couldn't make it or weren't one of the, like, 2,000-plus what? What? <laughs> people who caught it on the live stream online. Yeah, I, like, don't even know how to fully reflect on this shit. Like, I've been thinking about it pretty much nonstop for the last week or so. And, yeah, it was, like, so humbling. Mm, Yeah. I feel like, at least for me, the first thing that was so unreal is, as many of you may not, may or may not know, I don't know, the five of us have not been together in person ever before. And so it was just kind of like, how is that going to work out? And how is that going to be? And from the very beginning, it was just like only amazing and so warm (laughs) and lovely. And I just was like, wow, I connect so intensely to each and every one of you. And for totally different reasons, too. Like, I feel like I can have like a tie and a crucial connection with each person in the coven And, yeah, it was just so special. I don't even know how to talk about it without sounding (laughs) weird. (laughs) It was, it was, yeah, no, it was really amazing. I think all of us just had, like, a total blast finally getting to meet each other in person. And I think there was, like, a lot of just, like, it was, like, all of our hearts were just so full. But it was also really great to, like, get to meet a bunch of people who listened to the podcast and, you know, whom we had never met. And some people came from, like, really far or like far you know driving like Ohio Wisconsin it was yeah it was pretty pretty impressive yeah I did not know how to handle that just talking to these two people shout out you know who you are who came down (laughs) from Madison Wisconsin and show up to the venue early our first gear sale yes first merch and it was just so amazing to talk with them and just have them you know interact with us and they're like hey are you socialist willow and uh, (laughs) i was just like what is happening what is actually happening right now needless to say it felt really weird and beautiful and great it was just such a wonderful community i think one of my favorite moments abby one of our the friends of the podcast tweeted about this, but everybody's singing Solidarity Forever together. Oh my god, just yes. amazing! <laughs> I forgot that happened. <laughs> oh my gosh, I loved that. Yes, what was the context of that? She was the ghost, uh, or she was the specter of communism. We pulled yes. her out from the crowd, right? And then she sang Solidarity Forever. Yeah, I or think she just everybody it? joined in. It's all oh, yeah. a blur. It's all, it was, trust me, it was definitely all a blur. Um, yeah, I, my favorite, like, okay, so for those of you that weren't aware, it, it was like, we started with a seance and it ritual very, type thing. Yeah, it was very different from the podcast, which I feel like is a little, you know, like it's, I mean, this is a very academic episode, but like, um, <laughs> it was very, it was so much weirder and like crazier than we normally are and I just think but we like really embraced embraced the witchy side of things and it was awesome yes and then there were a few of us that became spirits Kellen was Margaret Sanger 
I was Nancy Reagan. Ambria was Margaret Thatcher. And Tanya from the Trailbillies was Hugh Hefner. (laughs) 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 It was... uh, So that got weird. And then we talked about being those characters or we were those characters for a little while and then we came back we're witches continued to do some witchy stuff and then we had a IRL Q&A about the podcast and about kind of you know real life things and that was actually one of my favorite parts too I mean the whole thing was just so fun but that was one of my favorite parts because it was really amazing to hear what people wanted to know from us on a real yeah. level. Like I wasn't expecting some of the questions. And one of my favorite was just a woman in the audience asked what we do to stay sane with the news cycle, but also stay informed. And I just thought that was such an amazing question and a question that isn't asked enough. And the fact that they thought that we had any sort of authority on the matter was like <laughs> <laughs> its own thing. But at the same time, like, I don't know, it was just amazing. And I felt just so, so grateful to be a part of this. Yeah, it was, it was incredibly uplifting. We hope that everybody who was there just had like as much fun as we did. And I, I think it was kind of emblematic of the world that socialism can build you know like people who care about each other and are looking Mm -hmm. out for each other but are still having fun you know it was it was really just an incredible experience and there are more live shows in the future so we may be coming to a location near you soon yes we we at least hope so (laughs) (laughs) gotta keep that keep the funding rolling speaking of which we have merch on our website now so merch on our website Yeah, and I just wanted to kind of also say that I've been someone who's just been kind of struggling with some different things going on. You know, not only what we've talked about in our, you know, mental health and capitalism episode, but just general life choices. Like, do I want to continue to go down a path of a PhD program? And being surrounded by a group of women who are so incredible and are so filled with passion for the things that they're doing it gave me I feel like it gave me permission to really look at my life and be like hey Laura you should do things that make you happy and not things that make you miserable and so (laughs) I've turned a new leaf and now you got this like new happy pumped up Laura you may not have known that she wasn't here before (laughs) it's all a facade it's all a lie (laughs) no it's good and I'm Anyway, all that to say is this podcast is so great. Thank you all. Thank you for everything. And sorry that we're gushing and you're like, give us that real content. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, the good news is you're not going to have to hear us talk like at all for like the next 45 minutes. So true. It's all good. True. Okay. Well, on that note. (laughs) We're going to have our music break early in this episode so we can have our guests totally uninterrupted. And so this is a Seattle, Washington-based band. The songwriter Erica is very influenced by Ani DeFranco, but also is just an incredible, incredible guitarist and songwriter. And she and um, Doug Indrick are the two people in Animals of Grace, which is this band, and the song is Bartered Time.
Welcome back. Uh, today we have three wonderful guests with us, and um, we'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. So my name is Liz. I'm a PhD student in counseling psychology at Northeastern University, and basically I study the intersection of race and gender, specifically as it pertains to black women. So I've studied lots of different things, microaggressions, body image, all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Hi, y'all. I'm Ivy. I'm a PhD student at um, Harvard, and I study, um, my name of my program is Culture, Institutions, and Society. Um, Broadly speaking, my research interests concern issues of um, race, inequality, culture, and education. So I've studied everything from 
the impact of you know poverty in the suburbs to the sort of arcane cultural practices of elite universities like Harvard. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. My name is Yvonne Padilla-Rodriguez. I'm a PhD student at Columbia in U.S. history. My research interests are at the intersection of immigration and labor policies and histories of childhood. Uh, So lately, I've been working on agricultural child laborers who are from Mexico and Central America. But more broadly, I have a pretty broad range of experience in different immigration topics. Mm. Awesome. So amazing. (laughs) Well, we're really, (laughs) really excited to have you all here today. And um, we thought we'd just kick it off by letting Ivy talk a little bit about her research. Um, A lot of times before we have our guests on, we give some background on the topic that we are going to talk about. And we just decided to not do that today uh, because we figured (laughs) y'all knew way better than we did. So yeah, go for it. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I think really stands out for me about being a woman of color in academe is that, you know, at places like Harvard, the sort of myth of meritocracy is not only like alive and well, but is like thriving. Mm. Um, and there's just this like idea that it's a totally like level playing field for everyone. Um, but I think one of the things both sort of based on my own lived experience and also based on my research that is just like such a recurring theme is that you know, it's not a level playing field, right? And it's not just unlevel in some of the ways that seem very obvious, like, you know, not everyone has had access to great teachers or not Mm -hmm. everyone has the same amount of, you know, financial support from their families. But I think there's all these cultural aspects of inequality that come into play, um, particularly, I think, in elite spaces, but that I think really shape the experiences of so many um, marginalized people Um, in academe. And I think that's very true for me, particularly as a woman of color. Um, But I think it also applies broadly to other marginalized groups. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, completely agree. And I think there's also, as a woman of color in academia, there's this weird sort of dance that you have to do. And I think we all, from our own experiences, know that academia is incredibly, incredibly political. Um, But I notice a lot of the conversations that myself and my advisor have had, and she's also um, a Black woman in academia, surround a lot of what do I need to do in order to get where I want to be. And a lot of it involves sometimes me maybe doing research that I don't quite want to do or doing it in a way Mm -hmm. that I don't quite want to do it in an effort to prove like, no, like I am good enough and I'm going to do it this way just to make you all listen to what I'm saying. Could you like elaborate on that, Liz, like, like, sort of just give an example of what you mean? Yeah, so I um, am doing my dissertation on the creation of a internalized misogynoir measure. Mm -hmm. And misogynoir is misogyny that's specifically directed towards black women. Um, And again, I am a counseling psych PhD student. So I'm looking at what is the effect of internalized misogynoir when we're thinking about just really any sort of mental health outcomes, depression, anxiety, all of that jazz. And so typically when you create a measure, a lot of it is quantitative Mm. and I just hate statistics. (laughs) 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 And you know, I just hate statistics. And I really feel like, especially when you're talking about groups that have been traditionally ignored in the literature, that statistics don't encompass the entirety of our experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my advisor was telling me, you know, for the last two years, oh, it needs to be mixed methods, you know, because I knew I wanted to do a focus group to really help elucidate the concept of misogynoir more, especially since it's, you know, never been studied in really any scientific literature. But she'd really been hammering in that I needed to do mixed methods. And it took until my dissertation proposal for her to be like, yeah, I think if you try to do a quantitative piece in addition to this, you're going to be doing way too much. And I was like, well, why did you like that on me here? Like, what? And she's like, well, you know, it's because oftentimes she's like, if you want to work in academia at all ever, you know, once you've graduated, a lot of times, especially when you're a black woman, if you only do qualitative research, they're like, oh, well, clearly, like she doesn't know how to do like statistics and like mm-hmm. hardcore science. She's like, and I didn't want you to have to close that door, um, you know, just because you don't want to do qualitative research. I'm like, okay, but yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, I just want to echo that something, a lot of that really, really resonated with my own experience. Um, so I'm training as a sociologist of education, and I'm also a qualitative researcher. And I think that, you know, I came into my program saying I wanted to do mixed methods, and it was largely because of a sense that quantitative research gets sort of valued more mm -hmm. as, quote, objective, which, like, I am throwing up air quotes around that because <laughs> I don't believe in objectivity. <laughs> um, but I think there's also something really interesting about how as like, I should say, I'm also a black woman, but like, I think this is probably true for women of color, you know, more broadly that like, we aren't granted sort of the, uh, like epistemological authority to be experts on our mm. own experiences. Like mm. we are frequently, you know, told that we're biased or like the sort of you know, the knock that gets kind of thrown around in my field is that you're doing, quote, me search, right? If you're oh, a black woman who such studies- such garbage. Right? <laughs> but like, if you're a black woman who studies black women, right, or anything related to blackness, there's this sense that you're somehow biased. But like, literally, like, white men never get asked that, right? White researchers yeah. study white people, and no one says, mm, seems like, you know, you're kind of really only focusing on your own group, right? <laughs> so there's, like, all these ways in academe that- that this myth of objectivity gets perpetuated to the detriment of researchers of color who are trying to um, sort of illuminate the experiences of the communities that we come from. Yeah, totally. I feel like, so I have a professor who's an indigenous professor and she has specifically written books that only cite mm -hmm. indigenous scholars or people within an indigenous community. And she just kind of takes it and runs with it like, screw you, I'm not going to cite another white dude. I'm not going to continue this colonial lineage that exists throughout academia just because this is the knowledge that was accepted throughout history does not mean that it should be accepted now and does not mean that we cannot value tons of other um, lineages of knowledge because it's, it, in my opinion, at this point when people are just referencing the same old shit over and over again like I swear to god if someone references Michelle Foucault I will like <laughs> slam my head into a wall but it's like I just want to be like show me something real and and I then I think the people upholding the status quo probably even more so at the elite schools are like scared by that they're intimidated by that because you're actually creating something real you're actually producing new knowledge in the academic field, which is kind of amazing and what we all should be doing. Yeah, I was gonna jump in and ask Yvonne, I know, just in our, our personal conversations, we've talked a lot about like what it takes to be taken seriously in academia. Uh, and I was wondering if you wanted to, sh I know you have a billion thoughts about this, but wanted to share any of them. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, I think, because I, I come from a different perspective. I don't these aren't issues that I, I conduct research on. I think the what I can share is maybe like the like a lot of anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Um, I certainly feel like I haven't been uh, taken re uh, taken seriously in some of the in a lot of the spaces that I've been in, um, and even those in which I've been I'm being asked to talk about something as the expert on a particular mm -hmm. on a particular subject. I I've had the experience of being on panels where either a program or the institution will ask me to talk about my experience translating, for example, my research on immigration to like practical policy advocacy. And there have been, in particular, my white peers in the room who sometimes will like raise their hands. And I've had the experience of them saying to me, actually, I've, I've worked on this topic and I'm going to answer this question. Um, and sometimes oh, no. I felt like, hmm? yeah, so this has actually happened to me a lot where in, in, I've been in spaces where I feel like I'm clearly the minority in the room. I'm a Mexican American woman who's doing a PhD in a highly selective program. And I think I also come from a minority in a class sense in that mm -hmm. um, I grew up with undocumented parents. I grew up surrounded by poverty and not having a lot of access either to um, opportunity or, or to like the particular kind of language that's deployed in academia or even how to like be in a situation in which there are peers around you who take up a lot of scholarly space and are sometimes maybe even insistent, I think, on devaluing your own academic contribution or your own role as 
and academic in that space. Mm. Um, so I've certainly been dismissed, talked over, and I don't know that anyone has ever really been explicit to me about whether or not I can hold any kind of objectivity in what I do. Um, I mean, I do have a lot of personal connections to what I do, although I certainly am not an immigrant. My parents were immigrants from Mexico to the U.S., um, although I do identify with a lot of the subjects that I study, but I've always thought it was bullshit that we don't have important contributions to make to the scholarship. Mm. I do think that we come from a particular perspective that actually enhances the the discourse around a particular topic. Yeah. Um, so I I'm sorry if I'm like rambling. I just um, no, not yeah. Not. I didn't. <laughs> I'm shaking my head like so viciously. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just sitting here and I'm, it was similar to what Ivy was saying with the air quotes. I sometimes wish the people listening to this could just see us all just get riled up. Like, <laughs> Yeah, academia was, I don't think I figured this out until pretty late in my, in my undergraduate career that I even wanted to go because it was never really even presented to me as, mm. as something that could be a possibility for me. Um, and once I showed up, I, I mean, I experienced what I'm sure the both of you are, are really are familiar with. Um, I got super depressed in my first year. I mm-hmm. felt like I, I like was totally unable to create community. I, I also agree that I think meritocracy is a total, total myth. I feel like my entire life I've had to fight tooth and nail to get to where I am. And when I talk to other students around me, I feel like there there's a disconnect between their trajectory to their PhD programs and, and my own. So a lot of what you're saying that you have found in your research, I've certainly encountered that personally. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we don't talk enough about like, you know, they emphasize how much getting a PhD is, at least in my program, they try to emphasize, you know, this is a community effort and you come in with your cohort and you guys are supporting each other. But as a woman of color, especially when you're the only one, and in my case, like, one of two people of color in the last three years of your program, there's this pervasive isolation that really affects your work and you just kind of don't know how to deal. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know who to talk to. And like, my advisor was on sabbatical for Mm -hmm. the first semester of my first year. And so it was just this very like deep loneliness that made me oftentimes question like, what the hell am I doing here? Yes. And I think one of the hardest things is that Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of the hardest things about starting grad school is like, I think actually some of that sort of unsettling that happens in the first year is like intentional. Like, I think that um, I just went to a talk last week by a Harvard sociologist named Mario Small, who just dropped a book called Someone to Talk to, which is about how people decide who to confide in when they are having issues. And so the data for this book were actually generated from interviews conducted with graduate students. And so he's sort of developing this theory based on the relationship between graduate students and their advisors. So anyway, at this talk last week, it was obviously like, you know, it was mostly grad students and then like professors in the room, but there were some really interesting conversations about how hard the first year of grad school is Mm -hmm. and how grad students sort of make decisions about who to talk to, who to go Mm -hmm. to for support, the extent to which they feel like they can go to their advisors for support. And I just think back on my own first year, like so much of my fresh, of my, not freshman, (laughs) (laughs) first year fall um, was really about me feeling like, do I belong here? Do I, am I smart enough to be here? Like, you know, there were so many other people in my program who are, you know, going to be second generation academics or, you know, who have kind of like always known they were going to get a PhD. And I didn't even think about getting a PhD until like 2013. So yeah, I think there's all these ways in which, you know, I think grad school is sort of this process of like breaking you down um, and then in theory, building you back up. (laughs) But I think that process is particularly brutal for those of us who like don't sort of come in with a really strong sense of like, well, I'm supposed to be here, right? Mm -hmm. Like that process of being broken down might just actually break you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When, when I first got to Columbia, like I said, I had gotten, I I fell into like a really, really deep depression. I remember there were weeks where I wouldn't come out of my apartment. 
I really wasn't seeking help from a lot of people, but I was so, so fortunate that my advisor is also a woman of color who is incredibly attentive to her graduate students. And mm. I can honestly say that there are really only two reasons that I'm still in my PhD program because I considered constantly dropping out in that first year. The first is obviously my advisor. I mean, she had a recurring appointment with me every single week to mm. deal with not only anything that I was struggling with academically, but I mean, she was willing to like talk to me and counsel me on anything else really. Um, and the, I guess the, the other reason that I'm still here is that I was able to identify the community of people at Columbia in my program whose experience I do in some ways resonate with my own and the kinds of difficulties that I experience. So I, whenever I meet prospective students or even younger students who are still in college who are thinking about getting advanced training in, in a particular subject, those are always my first like two pieces of advice. Number one, you know, think very, very hard about the the kind of advisor that you're going to have and like talk to the to their students and what the relationship with them is like. Um, and the other one would be to create that kind of community because I mean, I also I, in another sense, I also feel kind of torn about my relationship to my department because I I think I think it's pretty safe to say I think maybe Kellen knows this that I've been pretty open about how difficult it has been for me to survive and to still be here mm -hmm. because while I have a really supportive advisor and while I found the community of people that um, that I really love and really support me outside of like these two you know entities I sort of stay away like I've found that one of like the best coping mechanisms is actually to create some emotional and physical distance between myself and the program because I've also found less than supportive people I've even found I think environments are actually inhospitable to mm. people from from my background I've seen plenty of other students who have come in after me who have been either women or students of color who have either left the program or who, because they had unsupportive um, advisors, instead of being asked, like, how can I help you have a better experience here, were in their first semester being asked, um, we need to reconsider your place in this program. Wow. The only reason that that hasn't happened to me is because I have such a supportive advisor who herself is a woman of color. But I mean, I feel like I'm constantly angry. <laughs> totally. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, Yvonne, to your first point about having an advisor that's super supportive, like, I know that just based off of my master's experience alone, when I was applying to PhD programs, I was like, I don't really care where I go. I just know two things that I want to go with someone who studies black women and I want that person to be a black woman. And that wasn't just for like the fidelity of the research. That was also because I was like, I know I'm going to get microaggressed on a regular basis. Yeah. I know that like, I'm just going to need the type of support that I feel like I can only get from other women of color and especially mm -hmm. me from another black woman. So mm -hmm. my advisor is also definitely the person she'll look at me and go, you look tired or like, <laughs> have you been eating? Like she just, <laughs> she, I, it's like, it's almost like she's just my like surrogate mother being oh. like, we can talk about all of this, but also like, have you been sleeping at least six hours every night? Okay, no, so fix that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like definitely also without her, I would have been long gone. Yeah. I think that's amazing I, because I don't think everybody has that experience. I mean, I've heard like worst case scenarios of students being honestly discriminated against both because of their race and their disabilities by their advisors. I mean, not everybody has this experience of having super supportive mentors. Yeah. Yeah. What's your experience been with advising Ivy? I love my advisor. I think that the advising relationship was something that was really important to me when I was choosing my program. Mm. So I... Gosh, where do I start? Um, I ultimately really, the thing that really caused me to choose to want to work with my advisor is that I felt like she really intellectually got the kinds of questions that I was interested in asking. And I felt like she was the person who was best equipped to sort of support my questions and help propel me forward. And I think that that has really like proven to be true. I've been really, really fortunate in my relationship with her. 
both academically and also personally. Anyone who follows me on Twitter is well aware of the fact that this year I had some very, very serious illness issues. Mm. And my advisor was really, really great about, you know, supporting me wanting to like stay in school and like keep working while I was, you know, undergoing treatment. Um, but also encouraging me to like, you know, take a step back sometimes and like, you know, telling me like, hey, you're at Harvard, but it's also okay for you to be human. Like, you know, if you need to take an incomplete in a class or, you know, if you can't get to this task for the project that, you know, I'm RAing for her on. So I've been really, really lucky. Um, my advisor is a woman of color, which I think, you know, maybe is helpful. I don't necessarily have the kind of relationship with her where like, you know, I wouldn't go into her office and like cry. That's mm -hmm. not our relationship, but I feel very supported by her nonetheless. Um, I think I've found community and support in other places in my program, um, more so from peers than from faculty, to be honest. But mm. I'm really lucky in that, like, my program is very large. There's 25 of us in my cohort. So I am not the only person of color. I'm not the only woman of color. I'm not even the only black woman. Um, and so I've really found a wow. lot of support from my peers. Um, like a week from today, I'm actually throwing a potluck for all the black doctoral students in my program. Oh so my we're gosh. All like, yeah, I'm going to get together and like have some food and some wine and, you know, just kind of be in each other's presence. And yeah, so I, I'm really lucky in that respect that like, I don't have to bear that burden of being the only one. Mm -hmm. um, although I will say that I am frequently the only one in like a given room or a given classroom, right. but at least right. I know that there are other sort of supportive people not far away. Do you feel like, I mean, do you feel like your school actively seeks to have a multicultural population of students? Because I know that one thing that I have been loudly and consistently <laughs> complaining about at my program. I'm like, it's absurd that in a profession that has literally ethical mandates, like clinical ethical mandates about how we're supposed to train and embrace multiculturalism and diversity, that like I am the only visible person of color in the last three wow. cohorts. Mm. You know, I was like that. And I'm, I'm kind of like, and they're like, oh, well, we don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I don't have the PhDs. Y'all do. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you should be figuring out how to get like a more diverse and multicultural. Also, it's not on you. That's like the emotional yeah. labor that you don't fucking need to do. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just I guess I wonder, especially because, you know, you would think that a more elite school would have a bigger a bigger problem with like recruiting a multicultural population that mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, if you think that's something that Harvard does intentionally or if you feel like they're just really good at supporting students of color or just kind of what? Yeah, like why is it that we're able to have such a diverse cohort? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of interesting things here. So one thing I will say is that I do think that Harvard as a whole and particularly the, the parts of this university that I am associated with are actively working to, to recruit a diverse class and a diverse cohort. Um, so I'll give them credit for that, right? Like, so the Ed School, for example, has a diversity recruitment program that they run every fall where they bring in hundreds of students of color to kind of, you know, showcase what HGSE has to offer and to, you know, um, encourage students to apply. I'll also say, right, that both education and sociology, which are the two sort of parts of Harvard that I spend the most time in, are disciplines that I think are much more diverse on the whole than some other, you know, um, departments um, at the university. So there's, you know, a little bit of skew in sort of yeah. the parts of the university that I am the most uh, well-versed in. But I do think that, you know, as much as there are these really good faith efforts, um, and I, there also are supports in place, there's, you know, a graduate school-wide um, students of color organization, which throws really great programming for, you know, social programming for students of color to all just kind of come together. So I do want to give, you know, Harvard its due for recruiting well and, and also working to support students of color while they're here. But I think there's, you know, I think there's another sort of flip side to that, which is that as much as, you know, Harvard is trying to sort of recruit more students of color, it also continues to uphold, you know, exclusionary practices that, mm -hmm. you know, also sort of work against that goal 
of bringing in greater diversity. So, you know, I think like a really obvious example of this is, you know, if you just look at the components that sort of go into a graduate school application, right? Like requiring the GRE, like, let's talk about that. Like, why <laughs> is that a thing that is required? Like, what do we really think it tells us about a student's potential to, you know, thrive in, you know, really challenging PhD program? Could you tell us a little bit about the GRE, like what it is? Some of our listeners may not be familiar. Yeah, good call. So the GRE is the graduate record exam. It's basically the grad school version of the SAT um, so it's a like four hour long standardized test with a with verbal sections, math sections, writing sections um, that is required for a lot of graduate programs, but not all. But it is required by, you know, many elite programs. Um, and it really, you know, it has some of the same issues that the SAT does in that, you know, it correl- like success on the GRE tends to correlate with you know, either like having attended like an elite college, which in turn correlates with, you know, parental income. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also racial gaps in GRE score distributions. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways, you know, there's a lot of reasons to question whether that is a particularly useful metric or whether it causes promising candidates to sort of get shut out on the basis of their performance on a standardized test. Mm. I think even if we thought it was a good measure, I think something that has really just been standing out to me recently, you know, it's fall. And so um, everyone is sort of deep in recruitment mode. And so I've been talking with a lot of prospective students over the past month, and I've just heard so much anxiety about Mm -hmm. this test. And, you know, people are so concerned that, oh, the fact that they didn't do well on the math section of the GRE is going to keep them out of a history PhD program, (laughs) (laughs) which is just like kind of absurd, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's really, Mm -hmm. so that's what I was just sort of getting at with like, you know, I think that as much as there's sort of these good faith efforts to increase diversity, there's also a lingering sort of hold on other metrics of, you know, merit or deservingness or potential um, that work against those goals. And then I also will just say like, being Harvard really helps when it comes to yielding students, right? Yeah. So even if there is, even if we bought into the idea, which I don't, but even if we bought into the idea that like, oh, there's not, you know, enough really talented people of color coming through the pipeline, Harvard's going to get more than its fair share of those students because it has the resources, it has great funding, and because it has the name and, you know, the name I hate it, but it really does carry weight. And yeah. I'd be lying if I said it didn't factor a little bit into my decision, right? There's, totally. There's something kind of nice about being able to tell your mama and your grandmama, like, I made it. I'm at Harvard. Yes. I think that it's also interesting when people talk about metrics of diversity that I like to look upward, like who are the tenured professors, like tenured full professors? What is that breakdown? who are the people whose like pictures are on the walls in the president's office and shit Mm. like that? Like who are the people who are climbing that the ladder? Because especially at elite institutions, these institutions aren't offering tenure tracks for many incoming faculty anymore. So it's not even just like looking around and checking into the grad school experience. It's like the whole system itself has to be checked at every level. Yeah. I kind of referenced it before, Mm -hmm. but I was wondering if there was any ways that through your research that you kind of fight back against the white patriarchal hegemony present in academia. I'm kind of thinking of your annotated bib or any sort of lit review. Can you use those things to undermine, undermine or disrupt that hegemonic narrative? Or do you find other ways to do that? I mean, I know that all three of you are doing incredible research in areas that combat that status quo to begin with, but are there specific ways that you try to kind of flip the status quo on its head? Absolutely. I think, so the first, again, I said my advisor was on sabbatical my first semester and a person in my cohort, um, a white woman, she was like, 
you know, she was really interested in eating disorder and body image research. And so she decided for a, you know, a project we had to do that she wanted to work on what is black women's ideal body image. And the basic premise behind that is that black women are having increasing rates of eating disorders um, and body image issues, but don't seem to be internalizing the thin ideal the way that white women and Asian women and Latinas are. And so, you know, she's talking to me, she's, you know, working on this project and she's talking to me informally. She's like, you know, I just can't find anything in the psych literature about what black women's ideal body image might be. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, girl, it's not like, <laughs> First of all, looking in the psych literature, the whole point of you doing this project is that like you're looking, the psych literature doesn't talk about it. Yes. <laughs> like, so there's your first problem. Like, <laughs> second of all, like, I was like, black woman's body image. I was like, think about some of the most popular black women, like in media, like they're mm. curvy, they're hourglass shaped. Like to me, I, as a black woman, I'm like, this is not rocket sciences. Mm. But like, yeah. and, so, and so that was the point where I decided, I was like, I'm going to have to be a co-author on this because I refuse to let you just. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> and so like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing together and especially like a lot of my part has been saying we need to move out of the psych literature and we need to be looking at people like Bell Hooks and mm. people like Gloria Anseldua. And we need to be looking at like these black women in other disciplines who have a lot to say about like how systems of white supremacy and patriarchy influence standards of beauty. I was like, because they've all talked about it, but like looking in the psych literature and using that as our basic premise is not going to help and it's not get you the answers you're looking for. And so I think for me, a lot of trying to subvert this narrative of like, oh yes, like we need to be putting all these like dead old white men mm -hmm. <laughs> and recognize that like, yes, Bell Hooks may not be a psychologist. He may not like, talk about mental health, but the fact of the matter is she's way more of an expert on this than like Freud is and she's paying attention. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think that there are two ways in my case in which I try to subvert some of the larger narratives within the scholarship that I that I participate in. I think the first is my my presence and my existence as an academic in these spaces where I'm constantly a minority, where I'm constantly being talked over, um, mm -hmm. not taken seriously, is in and of itself a, a major way of doing this. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think that the subjects that I focus on in my research is another way of subverting the, the larger hegemonic narratives in immigration scholarship in particular. Too often I find that the experiences of male migrants are privileged over all other actors mm -hmm. in an episode of migration. And even in like the news very recently, you hear so much about child migrants and yet they're they're hardly ever centered in academic conversations. They're not taken seriously as political subjects. They're not taken seriously as laborers. And yet more often than not, they're subverting or um, they're kind of toppling traditional age hierarchies. Mm. And in, in that way too, I've, I've found that I, I sort of have like a, a personal connection to the, the subjects that I study because when I was growing up, I also felt that in similar ways, I was doing that being a quote unquote minor in an immigrant family who was making significant contributions to our survival. And so in that ways, I think I'm also trying to um, intervene in some of these larger conversations that are not taking the voices of children seriously, when more often than not, they're major motivating factors for migration, um, or they migrate on their own. Um, and they do so in order to support their families, their narratives and their voices are also important. Mm -hmm. Totally. I have so many thoughts on this um, <laughs> because I think, you know, as I said, right, like I didn't, I haven't like always known I wanted to do a PhD. And I think now that I'm here, I feel like I have, it feels like this degree is not just about me, right? It's not just for me. Um, it's about sort of contributing to the communities that nurtured me for the 25 years before I started a PhD, which I think is, you know, sort of an additional burden to kind of carry with me that like, I can't just be here and do my work, but that I also feel like I have to do this additional work of, you know, trying to push academia to be more inclusive or more accessible mm -hmm. so that 
more people like me will have the opportunity to be in these spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of different things that I sort of am involved in as far as trying to push back on the overwhelming whiteness, maleness, middle-classness, abledness of traditional academic spaces. I think one, you know, sort of relating to what someone said earlier about just being in the space, about existence, being resistance. Like, I think for me, finally committing to doing the work that I want to do and answering the research questions that I think are important has been really important. So, you know, as opposed to studying, you know, things through a quantitative lens, because that's more objective and is going to be, you know, viewed as more rigorous, like really deciding like, no, the questions I want to answer are things that, you know, are better um, approached through ethnographic methods, right, that are really about participant observation and, you know, deep, you know, rich interviewing. Um, so I think that's been a big thing. Another thing for me is being very, like, public about, you know, what it's like and what it means to be a Black female PhD student at an elite space. Like, I think of public awareness as being sort of important to not just other people in academic spaces, but also just more broadly for people to understand that these are still spaces where there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get them to be inclusive. Like I think universities often get framed as these sort of liberal bastions of, you know, diversity and multiculturalism. And so I think okay. sort of showing that there are still these issues, you know, is a really sort of important project. I also, you know, I said that my advisor is a woman of color. I also have really made sure that I've taken advantage of opportunities to collaborate with faculty of color aside from my advisor. Mm -hmm. So my entire committee is people of color, which I'm really, really amped about. <laughs> yes. uh, and then I think another thing, like I have the privilege of being on the editorial board of a journal. Um, and so I've been really, really intentional about, you know, making sure that marginalized faculty, whether that's, you know, faculty who are queer or trans or faculty who are early career researchers or faculty who are people of color, that they know that our journal is a space that is interested in their voices and values their voices. And, you know, I know that, like, obviously, it's still really important that the work be rigorous and well done. And it, you know, still gets vetted and goes through a whole editorial process. But I think just being intentional about, you know, shooting emails to faculty and saying like, hey, do you have anything you're working on? And have you thought about us as a venue for it um, is mm -hmm. another way in which, you know, I sort of use my position and my privilege to help um, other people get their work and their important ideas out into the world. That's awesome. So we're going to be wrapping this up soon, but I wanted to sort of end this with a a more upbeat question. We talk about a lot of sort of depressing <laughs> things on this podcast, um, but we try to like at least end on a high note. So I was wondering if y'all would just talk about the best part of grad school, what that's been so far for you guys. I think the best part of grad school has been knowing that there are other people like me. So I went in January of this year, I went to the National Multicultural Conference. Um, which is this big psych uh, multicultural conference that's held, I believe, every year. And I got an invitation through um, the Division for Black Women to be part of an inaugural leadership institute for indigenous and diverse women of color. And so I was hype, yeah. <laughs> super excited. And so it was just one day, but to be around so many other women of color psychologists who got it. And these are people like whose work I rely on so heavily because otherwise I'm going to be relying on again, like bastions of white supremacy and patriarchy who don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> like mm -hmm. To be there and to be in that atmosphere of sisterhood was so incredibly powerful and it re-energized me like nothing ever has. And I was like, I can do this because these women who are standing up here did it before me. And I know that I have a path to this now. Mm, that's awesome. Congrats on that, Liz. That's huge. Yeah, Thank it's you. amazing. Similarly for me, I think one of the best things about graduate school has been the community that I that I've been able to find and and create. It definitely wasn't easy, I think, to form this community. And I think it was a lot of like I think there was a lot of emotional labor that 
went into this because I felt that the department lacked the kind of support system or the infrastructure for a student like me. But I have made, I think, probably both the best friendships that I've ever had in my entire life and also the most supportive colleagues that I think I've ever had in my academic career. And then I think the there's a second part that for me has been really enjoyable. It's a little bit more personal. I have a younger sister who I've taken so much joy in the fact that I have been able, because now I have a little bit more financial stability than I did when I was growing up. Clearly, we're not like millionaires on our graduate stipends. <laughs> um, but, but compared to you know what I experienced when I was growing up, this is the most financial stability I've ever had. Um, so I've had the opportunity to fly out my 14-year-old sister to New York City. Um, I think that was the first time that, I mean, she'd been on a plane in the U.S. She came and saw me um, and she was able to see like where I live. She came and visited Columbia and to be able to like watch her have the experiences and to have the access to the opportunities that I didn't have when I was growing up been like so, so like touching and really kind of inspiring for me. Um, cause I remember being her age and not knowing a single person who had gone to college. Mm. Um, and so now that I have the opportunity to bring her and like actually show her, you know, not just like to tell her about these experiences, but like really actualize it in front of her has also been, I think one of the most rewarding aspects of this. Yes. That really, really resonated because people often like, don't believe me when I say this, but yeah, grad school has also been the period of time in my life when I've had the most financial stability. Like, it is still like a thing of wonder for me that I can like roll up to Trader Joe's and like throw things in my cart and not be like adding every dollar and cent on my calculator yeah. to like, you know, like have to choose, do I get eggs or do I get milk? Like, it's mm-hmm. a horrible thing to have to think about. And that's legit, like, you know, what things were like for me growing up a lot of times. And yeah, I think also for me, like getting to share this with students who I've worked with in the past, like my students are some of the most important people in my life. And like, I've had a couple of them come visit me or like, you know, they come and ask me about grad school and just being able to pass on to them, like knowledge that I didn't have is like super, super gratifying. But I was going to say, I think for me, the best part of grad school is like, you know, as much as it's not perfect and as much as I complain about Harvard or my program, at the end of the day, like, it really feels like a giant privilege to be where I am. Um, like, I get paid to read and write and think about big questions that, you know, are are meaty and challenging. And I get to wrestle with those things. And it's super exciting and challenging and intellectually gratifying. And I, I honestly, like, I still can't believe that, like, this is my life, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm this is my third year of my program and it still is just kind of unreal that I get to spend so much of my time in community with other people who are dedicating their lives to to asking tough questions and trying to make the world a better place um, and a more understood place. Mm. Well, I think that's just like the best possible note to end this on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming on this show. Like, it means a lot. And I love not having to be a person that talks. <laughs> I love listening to y'all. Yeah, this was awesome. I'm really, really excited for everybody to hear this. I think it's going to be just a really great episode. So thank you guys so, so much for coming on today. We so appreciate it. Thanks thank for, having, for us. having us. Yeah. the best guests that's really what it comes down to yeah so so lucky to have had them on i hope y'all enjoyed it we gotta thank you guys so much as always for listening we missed y'all during the off off week but we are so excited to be back we've got yeah we got some great stuff coming up next week as well and every other week following so stay tuned yes yeah uh chelsea manning go on season of the bitch that's so (laughs) chelsea manning get on season of the bitch Holler at us on the internet at Season of the Bee, Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, Season of the Bee at gmail.com. Send us your music and, you know, get some merch if you want while it yes. still lasts. 
<laughs> oh, also, next week's episode is uh, how to deal with your conservative family during the Thanksgiving holiday. So, <laughs> is that real? Yes. Oh my gosh. I just put it in because we didn't have one for next week. <laughs> and that's win. what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Looking forward to it. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> All right. See y'all next time. See you. Love you, Colin. Bitch.